podcast and I'm your host Fawn Hentrell. I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming our guest Julie Kratz. She's the founder and chief engagement officer of Next Pivot Point. She's also a highly acclaimed TEDx speaker, author, podcast host, and authority on diversity training in the workplace. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm excited. And we initially connected on LinkedIn and I've been following your work and I'm just excited to have you here as a guest. Same, excited, excited for this conversation. The Future of Enterprise really talks a lot around disruptions that are happening in business and as it relates to careers, technology in the workplace. You being an authority on diversity, best practices when I look at your content Can you share what types of trends and things that you're seeing in terms of diversity and inclusion in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been in this work for the past eight years. And before that, I did um, corporate stuff um, for uh, about 12 years, um, mostly as a people leader. So it's been such an evolution over this collective 20 years. But I'd say where we're at today is we're at a real crossroads where I think DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion is probably the most common acronym that most of my clients are using nowadays. It used to be D plus I, diversity and inclusion, and it used to be just diversity. But we've realized that it's a combination of individual actions as well as systemic changes. And this is the crux of where I think we're at in the DEI space. E stands for equity, which is very much the system's work. You know, it doesn't you can't just ask individuals to be more inclusive and just hope there's a support system to it, make that happen. Oftentimes, people, everyday people, well-intentioned folks that want to be allies for each other, want to be helpful to folks that are different from them, they are confronted by challenges in the workplace, bias systems, hiring practices that aren't inclusive, promotions, um, processes that could be more equitable, Um, Feedback is disparate to um, underrepresented groups, challenging assignments, (laughs) mentorship, sponsorship. So like all of these things that we know are necessary for career growth and the systems of which have very much been alive and well for a long, long time are really at a point where they have to be disrupted. And human beings don't love change, right? And so these systems are very slow to change. Um, But I'd still say, you know, 80% of the work I do is on the education side. So we still have a huge awareness gap and a huge activity gap that absolutely has to be addressed, especially by anybody that's a leader, a manager, anyone that aspires to be a leader, because that's the behavior we're modeling for for future generations. Um, so it's still still education heavy, but I, I wish we could get more to those, those yes. systems. Work. And the systems, that's really where I want to focus our conversation today, because that's where the change happens. And one of the things that I see is that diversity and inclusion in organizations are typically lumped together. And organizations sometimes we'll probably find it difficult to understand that there there's layers of commitment that it takes to move from creating this strategy for diversity and truly creating a culture of inclusion, right? And it really requires this, I would say, 
multifaceted commitment, understanding to really bring a fourth engagement to move things more towards systemic change. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to this um, well-intentioned, like, this problem will solve itself. We're a good place to work. We're, you know, um, really into employee engagement and all these, like, really nice things that people say around inclusion. And what people are asking for is not just to say the things, but to do the things and asking organizations to demonstrate with their actions their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion. And that goes beyond a statement, a donation, um, a press release, those types of things. It's, it's the principles we talk about are one, intentionality. It has to be intentional, meaning this isn't a check the box exercise, right? And so many organizations, Sherm just had a report that said 70 or no, it was 80% of companies are just kind of doing um, DEI is kind of, um, window dressing type of work. Like they're just kind of going through the actions. They're not really committed to it. So intentionality is a game changer. So is consistency over time. This isn't a one and done, right? It's 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 continuous. It's we expect to th- see things on a regular cadence from our leadership and our town halls and our monthly meetings in any education that we do. It's just inclusion is a thread through which um, we look at things. And then senior leadership. I think that's a big distinction that we see when you have senior leadership teams engaged, truly engaged um, in the work, are talking about it, are acting on it, are making mistakes and admitting them and correcting them, modeling that behavior. Um, that's when I start to see like it really come into motion. And that's that's the part. Unfortunately, there's not as many organizations doing all of those things intentionally, consistently with senior leadership engaged as I'd like. Right. And, you know, that's very interesting as I think through probably the last two and a half years, you know, as we kind of start to shift and go through this pandemic, the disruption that that's caused in the workplace and everyone being home and people seeing all of these different, I would say, blatant attacks on different diverse groups, or I say injustice, and people are watching these things happen. And so organizations who typically have not done anything have seen how their maybe employees feel about trying to have their company create this change. So they're having to move from the lip service, right, to actually having tangible things like what are you doing in the community? But then also, what does it look like in the workplace? Because the conversation really looks at what are the career paths? You know, as you bring people into your organizations, what is your culture? Talk a little bit about, you have the your new book, Allyship in Action. And some of the things that I like about what you talk about in your book is that you said that individuals leverage their privilege to dis- should use that to disrupt the system. Talk a little bit about that. What what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, towards the end of the book because the P word still scares people right. for some odd reason. Um, I just don't think we've talked about it in a healthy way in our culture. So first, privilege is not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you didn't work hard. It doesn't mean you haven't had hardships. That's the human experience. It just means it wasn't because of something that you couldn't control, like your skin color, gender identity, sexual orientation, et cetera. So I think just unpacking that first, 
and then flipping it, you know, one, one technique we do in the workshops we lead and, and we write about this in the book is flip it as a chance to be helpful. So if I have privilege by way of my white skin, how can I leverage that privilege for good? And this isn't save the day for somebody, no rescue cape needed. You know, it's just to be there for somebody that may not be seen as much as me. Um, that may not be as included as much as me. It's kind of putting up the radar and looking for opportunities to be helpful for folks that may not have the same lived experience of you. And ha- that's how we really create fairness and equity is when we level the playing field by our own actions, acknowledge our privilege as a chance to lift somebody up versus propel myself forward. And unfortunately, you know, you, you mentioned with organizations, we're still seeing you know, an overrepresented of of a certain demographic. I think we can all guess what that demographic is. The majority group is very much still, you know, 80% of most boards, um, 90 plus percent of most leadership teams. And so women, people of color, those um, in the LGBTQ plus community openly out, um, those with disabilities are not represented at those levels. And and the question we should be asking is why not? Why, why aren't we seeing, maybe we're seeing diversity at the front lines and maybe even into mid-management, but McKinsey and Company does a report every year with the Women in the Workplace report that measures representation at different levels, and it continues to be stagnant at best, that traction up to that VP level, to that C-suite, to that board level, and we need to ask ourselves, how could we leverage our privilege for good so that we see more representation? Because when we see more representation, we see much better business outcomes too. So it's a win-win situation. It's not a zero-sum game. Right. And, and a lot of times I find when I've seen on the executive search side for VPs and then even in the C-suite, you really have to remove the bias or even the unconscious bias that people may have when they really may not know that they have it. So a lot of times people hire people who are just like them. So that could not just be the visible diversity of it, but if it's you know, something that they have in common or something they feel most comfortable with, right? I think that conversation really is kind of how do you become blind in a sense to having this conversation, but then also putting in structures maybe to ensure that you're taking steps to bring that inclusivity in. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say, I, it's really interesting because, you know, I've had some people say, oh, Fawn, I don't see color. I'm blind to color. I'm like, well, I don't know how you are. <laughs> no, this- <laughs> so you really don't see, even even people that are actually skinned, uh, that, that have color blindness can yes, see shades right. of color. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I understand what they're saying, but it's like, okay, but how do you take that tangible step? How do you take that Next step. And being a a black woman in corporate America, I can tell you being the only person of color on a leadership team, when I'm speaking, I'm speaking and I'm advocating and I'm I'm advocating for, hey, this is what we need to look at X, Y, Z. This is some things to consider. And particularly it's predominantly male, you know, all white. And I had another white female colleague who also is sitting at the table and, you know, conversations I've heard, you know, coming back in the past have been like, oh, she's a little too aggressive for us. She's like, well, why are you, she said to them, why are you saying aggressive? All she said was, you need to consider these. And sometimes the conversation of if you're an authority or you're trying to communicate something, even like best practices, and I find myself really being selective 
right? About my words, about what I'm having to say, because mm-hmm. I don't want mm-hmm. someone to use that adjective. The next guy sitting right next to me having the same conversation is saying something even really aggressive, right? Like you like, no, that's really aggressive. Anyone would hear that and say that's really aggressive. And, mm-hmm. you know, people in the senior leadership really have to think about what they're saying in terms of the words, because it may not necessarily be that that person's aggressive, but a lot of black women, when we speak, one of the first things that you hear if we're saying something as an authoritative or being an expert or sharing, just like any of our other colleagues, the conversation typically goes back to a negative adjective. Yep. For the same exact behavior, a white man could easily. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when, oh, one of the you know, stereotypes, yeah. really unhelpful stereotype, the angry Black woman stereotype. You know, if you unpack that, what what do we accept in the form of anger from people in the workplace, right? That our tolerance level for anger and how in which it is expressed is very different, if you really think about it, across the continuum of diversity. And one of the tools we really like, Fawn, that I, I think is helpful in the moment because you're like, what's happening? Like, why are they calling me aggressive when he did the same thing earlier? Or why is this colleague being treated this way when another colleague wouldn't? Is just simply flip it to test it. You know, this is a, a process that Kristen Pressner has in her TED Talk. And I just love it for all dimensions of diversity, whether it's gender, race, disabilities. Would we accept that same behavior? Flip flip the gender, flip the race. Would this still make sense, this behavior and how it's being perceived and how it's being managed? And if not, then you've probably got a bias problem. And, and that's back to what you said earlier. We all have bias. It's how our brains work. It's for survival. It doesn't make you a bad human, but it does make it bad when it's problematic to your behavior and you're acting on stereotypes and generalizations rather than actual observation. And so I find that's very disruptive to do that flip it to test it in those situations. And it's hard to flip it to test it when it's not communicated to you. So that aggressive, those adjectives weren't communicated to me. They're communicated to my colleague who was the white female once I left the room to go on about Mm. my day. And then there was some additional conversations had at a different type of social gathering that I wasn't aware about. But it was important because I had an ally who was another female who understood what they were saying wasn't correct. And she had to actually share with them like, hey, why are you using that? Because we've had that conversation. She got it on a different perspective. But then we had to address these things, right? And yep. and and that really is being able to have a conversation, I think a lot of times without being upset or angry, but it's really the education piece um, that you mm-hmm. I'm glad you had an ally in that situation. Right. And that's one of the things in your book, I think is so important that at all levels that you have an ally, especially for women, and it doesn't have to be another woman, share with me maybe some strategies or things that companies can look at or people can look at maybe how to learn to clean up the culture, you know, or stretch the talent in the organization. Yeah. I know it sounds daunting, like clean up the culture. Um, But there are some tangible things um, that we know work from a best practice standpoint. One, if it's important, measure it. So, this is really the hard part with DEI is I get a lot of pushback, like, oh, we don't have that data. It's locked up somewhere in HR. Like, okay, come on. Like, for anything that's important in your business, 
you would measure it. It, it was the, kind of the equivalent of launching a new product and right. not me- measuring sales or costs. Like, come on. Exactly. That's not how we would do things. So come, measure it. And and don't just measure representation data, please. Um, there's some legal issues there, too. So you just got to be careful um, and work with your compliance group accordingly. But I'd say having people self-select in an anonymous survey, you know, race, gender, disability, um, sexual orientation, if you felt that was um, – uh, something that people would be open about because 50% of folks are closeted in the workplace. So, you know, those are the big four, but there's obviously way more dimensions of that. Um, but I would keep that anonymous um, and I would not just make it representation data. I would make it inclusion data too. So um, how, what are the perceptions? You know, one of the most telling questions is do I have a coworker I trust? You know, do I feel heard in meetings? Um, does my manager talk about inclusion? Is my manager inclusive, right? Like these are telltale signs of of true legitimate inclusive behavior, which we know diversity representation doesn't work without inclusive behavior. People don't stay places where they don't feel like they belong. So um, that's one tenant. I, I would say measure what matters. And if DEI matters, please measure it. Then, you know, by way of that, I think you can help clean up the culture because then you have data to, to say, are we getting better or not? You know, where do we want to be and where are we at today? What are the activities we need to do to close those gaps? And that's kind of like our roadmap. So a lot of times when we work with clients, we'll just help them kind of say, what's point A, right? Let's get some data. Let's put something together. Maybe you already have data. Maybe we can help you collect some data. This point A, where do you want to be three, four, five years from now, one year from now even? Like, what is that point B? And then how do we close that gap? And that's where you get intentional and you get the consistency and hopefully that senior leadership engagement that we talked about, because that's what's needed to clean up a culture. So many organizations I've worked with where HR is buried, you know, somewhere outside of the C-suite, which always feels icky to me, or DEI is nested or HR, HR, you know, it's like this org chart, like very far from the C-suite. And so if you don't have the C-suite's attention, you don't have the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all the C's talking actively about this or being well-versed and, and on their own, likely on their own journey, then it's very difficult to change a culture where they're not seeing that mirrored and reflected at the highest levels. We're smart as employees. Right? We know we pay attention to what leaders are doing and we tend to do those things because we want to get good performance reviews. We want to be perceived as good workers and get promoted and all those good things. So if if leadership's really active in this, it sends a huge cue to the rest of the workforce like, oh, I need to do better too. And I think part of the leadership piece, some of it could be, you know, where some people actually just kind of get it right. But then there's areas where, and that's when I talk about competencies, competencies are things that are innate that somebody just naturally has. But then there are behaviors that have to be taught. Those are things that you have to educate people on. What are some strategies that organizations can look to deploy as it relates to educating the leadership and management? on how to manage behavior. Yeah, and I think that's a tricky one. I think that's where we're still at. We're still at this, like, and and for folks that have been marginalized or, you know, underrepresented their whole lives, I think it's very frustrating. We're still at an education awareness perspective, myself included. Um, However, you know, once people see it, it's hard to unsee it. And that's what I love about this work is, 
you get these light bulb moments, the aha moments. I mean, I had somebody in training a couple weeks ago that said, you know, I just said, white men, we really want you included in this. Like, please, please think about how you can leverage your power and your privilege for good. And someone private messaged me, thanked me. Like, I didn't know if I was supposed to be here. Thanks for letting me know again. And I just thought, what about, what about inclusion? Sent the wrong message that you weren't going to be included. But that's a stigma that we're dealing with as a society, that the diversity word, you know, it feels like it's for me and not for you. And that's, that's something we really have to disrupt. And like you said, education is a key piece of this. And that's why we wrote Allyship in Action. It's kind of 10 key behaviors that we think folks that want to lead inclusively in all spheres of their life, because it's there's no on and off switch at home or work. There never was, but there certainly isn't in a hybrid work environment, which I know some folks can enjoy, but not all. Um, so the tenets that we kind of came up with, um, we wanted to start with like your why. So anytime, you know, anytime you've made a behavior change, I'm thinking about a time when you wanted to get healthier, lose weight, exercise more, whatever, you know, did you go into it? Like, yeah, it'd be nice, but I don't know. <laughs> no, like that's not a good commitment. So same goes for DEI work. Like this is an intentional long-term commitment. So why do you care about this? Like, what's your why? What's your ally? Why? Why do you want? And people come up with the most compelling, beautiful things. You know, for me, it's about future generations, my kiddos and, and wanting the world to be more inclusive for them. Um, for other folks, it's really about a, a deep, deep sense of fairness and justice. Um, for other folks, it's personal reasons. Maybe their partner, or they have a friend, a family member that's shared something with them that they have been actively involved with, um, you know, being supportive of. And so the why, um, we talk about empathy and vulnerability, which those ones, you know, for if you think of a leader, we haven't advertised those as skills of a leader, but those are absolutely necessary to be inclusive because you don't know what it's like to be somebody else. No one's asking you to know exactly what it's like to be them. Empathy is more about just trying to understand, right? Not walking in someone's shoes, but trying to understand what it might be like to walk in those shoes. Vulnerability, you can't do this thinking you know everything. You just don't. You don't know what you don't know. And real allies say that, like, I don't know. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea, right? Um, and that might be hard to hear if you've experienced those things for many, many years. Um, but for a lot of folks, they're just starting to see the disparities and differences. Um, and so we, we kind of march through 10 key skill sets, and it, it builds from there, like emotional awareness. These are emotional conversations. You've got to be able to, you know, check your triggers and know and read the emotions of others. Um, we talk about privilege, as you said. Um, we talk about how to inspire other allies around you. I think that's one of the things that real allies do is they kind of create other folks joining the conversation. They create invitations and windows so that people want to be a part of it too. So it's kind of like a, a nice domino effect. And that's, that's, that's my hope is that by folks getting educated, understanding, you know, key aspects of inclusion, what's my role in it by doing those things more, you know, as human beings, we're social species, we mirror and match each other. So it should start to spread organically um, by way of people's individual behavior. But again, back to the systems have to be addressed so that when people are individually doing these things that they're not confronted by bias systems too. Right. And and I think if you look at your diversity inclusion, diversity equity inclusion, I mean, there's so many acronyms, you know, whichever one anybody wants to pick. <laughs> if you yep. look at that, yep. you have to think of it not just being standalone. 
in siloed. How does that touch every aspect of your business, right? In terms of what your organization does, even in HR, you typically see that as a manager role and they're really focused on events. And I think that's important, but to me, that's really surface. You have to be able to transition beyond that to really stretch the talent and the people and the culture to create the culture that you want to have because it's your brand, right? I think that also talks to your employer brand. So not only can you attract talent in by having a well-rounded employer brand, but how do you retain the people once they come into your organization? How do you engage them? What are the career pathways? Share with us a little bit about, you talk about the allies. How does it affect women? Talk to us a little bit about that and maybe career pathways for women. There's some really interesting research out. um, Joan C. Williams had a book many years ago about what works for women at work in four areas of gender bias. What's really intriguing, her latest book, Bias Interrupted, she actually parlays this on how it's not just gender bias, it's racial bias, it's a bias against disabilities and, and folks that have any dimension of difference in the workplace, which I found fascinating. So it speaks to you, like, what works for women works for all. Like, we started with half our workforce and understood the intersections of that experience because not all women are white women. Like, we need to be more intersectional with it. But all that to say this, there's four key areas that affect the women's experience and how we can be allies is understanding these areas. So for folks of different gender identities, racial identities, et cetera, they tend to face this prove-it-again bias. And the prove-it-again bias looks something like, and you've probably seen it before, you may have even experienced it, it's like, well, she did it once, could she do it again? Meanwhile, you know, male colleague, it's like, oh, he's a go-getter, he'll figure it out, right? And it's like, yeah, it's like, what? He's never done that. Like, and I have, what? And I remember this happening to me in corporate and being so confused about like, what did I do wrong? It's just a bias we have because we've seen more white men succeed in roles because they're overrepresented in those roles. So it's just kind of a, a big chicken and egg problem. Our brain recognized that as that's what that those are the people that do those jobs. And we haven't seen as many women, folks of color, et cetera, do those. So the proven bias is a big one. But actually the biggest one, and this is specific to gender, is the maternal wall. And this hurts men. It, it hurts anyone on the gender spectrum very, um, very much so. Because we tend to place this caregiving burden on women, and we tend to associate women with motherhood and men with providing. Most people make this association an implicit association test. And even for women that have chosen not to have children, have been vocal about the fact that they will not have children, still affected by this bias because they are somehow going to change their mind or they're at that age where it could happen. And this is where we start to see promotions just go off a cliff. You know, we have more women graduated from college than we ever have before, more than men. They're still not being promoted, especially in those childbearing years, which span, you know, nowadays from anywhere from like mid-20s to mid-40s and beyond, um, depending on when when women have children. And that's not fair to men who also want to be fathers, too. So watching out for things like, oh, she just had kids. I'm sure she doesn't want to be promoted. She can't travel right now. She has to take care of her children. Those things still happen a lot, and we're seeing an exodus of women in the workforce very much um, uneven um, from a gender perspective with the great resignation or whatever you want to call the last couple of years. And then 
the last two bias areas, maternal wall is the biggest one affecting women. Um, the last two have to do with the prove it again um, in tug of war. And what I loved about the story you shared earlier, Fawn, was the tug of war that can happen between two women, especially in a leadership team. There's usually one, maybe two. Like, we're starting to get better. But this infighting that it can create. Because it's like the zero-sum game. I've got to fight you for attention. I've experienced this too. And it's like, well, this is weird. And it's not natural. Like, this is not, we're just pitted against each other. This happens with folks of color too. Um, because when we have tokenism, just the one or the two, this becomes deeply problematic. It's a systemic problem that has to be addressed. Um, and then, so that's tug of war. Um, but I'd also, you know, think about how, um, that, you know, how we ask folks to prove it again, how we can be biased against folks based on their parental status, and then just watch out for some of those areas um, that can, those really create systemic biases. Um, the second thing you asked me is about career pathing. I think if you watch out for those biases and check in with yourself and performance reviews, especially, there's so much gendered language baked into those. Um, and the two areas that we find um, women do not get feedback as much as their male counterparts. It's been measured. Um, and and feedback helps us be better and grow, right? We need constructive feedback. We don't need to be told per- things about our personality is super unhelpful. Well, you're aggressive or you're too pleasing. It's like, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> like, give me something tangible. And then stretch assignments. Stretch women equally. Give them access to those opportunities you know, confront the prove it again bias and make sure that we're being equitable with how we distribute challenging stretch assignment work or growth opportunities. You know, every organization has that role or that thing you have to do on the career path. Make sure that's equitable. Yes. And I think that where people and organizations have to think, how are they going to pivot to do that? And, and starting is really the strategy of understanding the assessment first of your business. And I think sometimes people look at the role of diversity or people in these various positions as being something that you see in very large enterprises, right? Very large organizations. But I think as we look at the conversation and where we are today in society, that these are tools that organizations, regardless of their business, the face that they are in their business, they can utilize these tools. So from a large enterprise all the way down to a small business, what we're saying and what you're sharing are tools that everyone can deploy. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're, I'm a small business, three, four people, five-ish, <laughs> depends. Um, and we really try, you know, with our hiring to be super inclusive, right? Put put things in all the places where folks with diverse backgrounds could be and, and how we evaluate performance, um, how we do KPIs and make sure everybody has an opportunity to train and learn and to grow each year. Um, so I can speak to it as a small business owner, but I think it's really important, Vaughn, as businesses grow, what we start to see is a tipping point. And so especially once you get beyond 20 employees and you start to climb to 50, you know, that's when you usually add an HR person um, over, I'd say, 1,000, we start to see a DEI person. Usually HR is doing diversity work until then. All that to say on that growth journey from an employee perspective, one of the things, and you talked about this earlier, 
we tend to hire and promote people like us. It's called affinity bias. We feel more comfortable with folks like us, you know, that went to the same college as us, grew up in the same part of the country as us, um, worked in the same industry as us. I mean, all of this is like, are those the things that predict success? Uh, a lot of the data says no, <laughs> that it's, it's really a skill set and a mindset that affects folks' um, success and position. So watch out because you're likely to hire many knees people like us in the early years. And then if you get, you know, 100 employees plus, it's a hard place to pivot because then that person of color comes to your company and maybe only sees a few folks like them. And it's a signal of like, oh, I don't know if this is a place where I belong, right? Or for women or, you know, for if, for folks with disabilities or veterans, like if you don't see yourself reflected in the organization, it gives you pause. And then the second point of your question is a lot of companies have pivoted to recruiting and hiring diverse talent. So many diverse recruiting companies have popped over for the last couple of years. And that's a head scratcher for me. I think it's important. It absolutely is important. But exactly. if you're not doing the inclusive stuff, like why bother? Because yeah. you're not going to stay. And we know like the average tenure of a DEI person is less than two years. <laughs> so like make it, make it work so they want to stay because it's really costly, that turnover. It is. And that's, that's what I was saying. You can have the talent attraction strategy to bring a person on, but how do you retain them and engage them, right? Um, do, are there pathways for them to move in the organization? What does it look like? Are you giving opportunities for them to develop and grow? Are there stretch assignments? So that's that's really good. And I think one of the things as I look at how a company can promote culture, promote belonging, because they're not just one, they're, I think all of these things connected together it starts with being able to educate and your book does provide some tools, having toolkits. Can you share with us a little bit about your book and what types of toolkits you provide after your chapters? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for that. Like I think assessment and data is really important and self-awareness. <laughs> so what we did is we created a like 10 question quick assessment for each one of the 10 chapters. So like, you know, because a lot of people tell me like, oh, I'm empathetic. Yeah, sure. I'm vulnerable. You know, and then they go through the questions like, hmm, oh, yeah, I don't like to do those things. <laughs> or sometimes when we assess ourselves, it's like I should be doing this versus I am doing this. <laughs> so just being honest about your weak spots, um, I think is really important to self-assess. Okay, here are some things I actually need to work on. One of the biggest tools um, that I'm I've seen amazing results with is having a plan. And I know that sounds so simple, but that's our first chapter is like, how do you build out your why? Your, your What's your purpose for this work? What's your vision for the kind of ally you want to be? And then what are the action steps? And then we give you a ton of the action steps in the chapters of complete this exercise. So that was something that I found problematic in, as, my, as somebody that practices this work. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter um, George Floyd and all of the oh, un, you know, racial um, justice work that was long overdue, summer of 2020. You know, I'm trying to talk to my six-year-old at the time about this stuff, and I can't do it without crying. Um, that's a problem, right? And so if I can't talk about this, then oh my gosh, other people that aren't embedded in this work, imagine the struggle they're having. So we tried to break it down with like practical activities, right? For privilege, for example, and this is a deeper dive later in, so we try to dip people's toe in the water before going to the deep end. But 
was a simple privileged exercise, just, you know, a, a sample of questions that you can go through with anyone in your life, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a boss, a manager, whatever, and just compare notes. Oh, I didn't realize you had that lived experience, right? And and one of the most powerful stories I heard about that was he had a, a man, a white man from the South. <laughs> so layer on all the stereotypes, you're probably associating your mind with that. And a black woman that he worked with. They did the privilege exercise together, and he was stunned. He was stunned about the experiences that she had particularly that had nothing to do with what she did or how she grew up, but just simply based on the color of her skin versus he had had hardships in his life based on being of a lower socioeconomic status, which is you know somewhat rare to have that um, comparison, but he realized it had nothing to do with his skin color. And I just... That was just, that's an aha moment. That's hard to take away from somebody. People need to have that perspective to understand how important this work is and how important this conversation is. Yes. And that's eye-opening. And I think it starts with those exercises and being able to have people really do some introspection in terms of themselves Mm -hmm. because we can look and see what the other person is or isn't doing or what we perceive that other person is or isn't doing, but it really starts with you. Yep. Some really great points as it relates to that. And when you have tools, I'm so into tools. That's one of the, (laughs) I think any of my clients or people working with me, my team will say, oh, she's all into the tools. And I think tools are important because (laughs) you can have knowledge management and you can read it, but how do you mirror it, right? I always say, what is the cadence? How do you, Make sure that you're kind of speaking the same language. You know, how do you get the behavior that you want? Well, you have to give people tools and those exercises are a great way to start that. Yeah, it's back to what we said earlier about um, words versus actions. And this is the trap I think a lot of um, allies have have fallen into the performative allyship where I'm reading the book, I'm listening to the podcast, but I'm not doing the thing. You know, I'm not confronting bias in the moment. I'm not diversifying my network. I'm not empathizing with folks that are different from me as much as I could. I'm not doing things versus active allyship. And that's why we chose that for the title. It's like, it's it's doing hard things. And it doesn't have to be that hard though. And that's what you talked about with tools. People just need conversation starters. There's so much great content out online, but some of it's, if you, if you don't vet it, some of it can be problematic. And so we really took a very critical eye at the content that's already available out there. Um, partners of ours that have great tools and podcasts and resources and books. And yeah, you can do that. I mean, some people are book readers. Great. I love reading books, but a lot of people don't. So maybe a podcast or a video is more consumable for them. And then after you do that, and I struggle with this with my children, how do you have a good conversation about what that meant? And so having some discussion questions, watch this video and then ask A, B, and C, it's done for you. And so you don't have to do the hard work to understand, is this like a good exercise or not? Is this, what am I going to say afterwards? Um, A lot of times as allies, it's just asking good open-ended questions and sitting back and listening Um, which is easier said than done too. And that's where you come in or people like you who can come into organizations and help be a facilitator to help manage the conversation to make sure people are properly going through exercise and having 
respect of conversations, you know, in terms of the outcomes or things that are coming from the tools. And then that's a great place to start. And even at the executive level, when you have your offsite, I always say that's a great place to start because you can really do a lot of that work there. And it starts from the executive leadership and it's really what's espoused. How do you get everyone on the same page? Those retreats are a great way Mm -hmm. to, and offsites, to really start that conversation so that it's mirrored, you know, down throughout the rest of the organization. And I think those are really great foundation steps. And you give some really great tools Mm. um, for people to utilize. You know, now that you say that, like, that's that's a really good aha beat. Pre-pandemic, I used to do a lot of that. And, you know, everything quickly got changed. And so we don't engage as much in those retreats. And I totally agree. Getting people to have a shared experience for a day or two in a place that's neutral ground it's just so important because that's where you can have a real conversation. You know, an hour between calls, like there's no deep, deep conversation happening. Everyone's thinking about the thing they have to do next or their email box or whatever. Getting people to disconnect for a day or two um, can have them reconnect, you know, with the people that they work with. And I think people now more than ever want to really know the human beings that they're working with. It used to be taboo. Like we don't talk about our kids at work. And then you have you know, Zoom screens for Kids are running around the background, and we learned a lot more about each other in the last few years. And it's like, why weren't we doing that before? So I agree, leadership teams that are listening, you know, if you haven't done an offsite or a retreat in a while, find a way to prioritize that. And maybe, you know, not to tout Alice Ben Action, but maybe a book like that would be helpful just to give you some exercises that are really all prepared there for you. Um, to go through and compare notes together because you, at a minimum, you get to know each other. You get to know each other's vantage points. You get to know what people care about. You get to know more about their personal story. And that that very often leads to better teamwork, innovation, all the yes. great things that come and with so, inclusion. And so, you know, as we wrap up our interview, what are some trends that you're seeing as we move forward into the next year or so, is there any data or things that organizations should start to look at or things that statistics are showing that workers want their companies to do? Yeah, I mean, I I think right now we're at a really interesting point where most employees expect their leaders to be talking about actively things in the news cycle. And I I think historically that was, again, a big no-no. We don't talk about politics. We don't want to be divisive. We don't want to, like, tell our employees how to think. Yeah and no. And I know, you know, there's different vantage points, but I I think a really interesting study that just came out, Lean In just came out with this very recently. Um, A survey of, it was north of 3,000 employees said they wanted their organizations to actively um, have a stance on women's rights and what's happening right now with women's rights. And I read that. I was like, wow, 75%. I think it was 40, age 40 and lower. So there is a caveat there. Um, I'd be really curious to see if it skews, you know, generationally. That was, again, something we didn't do. And so the new generation, millennials, Gen, X, Gen Zers, rather, are expecting organizations to have a stance on things. And you know, I, I, I think that's a really challenging thing for organizations. You know, one of the things that I've offered with that data point is if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to have a political stance. Like, this doesn't have to be political. It can just be a human rights issue. And you can just say, we care about you. This is aligned with our values. Like, really unpack, like, how this ties to who we are as an organization. And 
you know, likely 50% of your employees are women that are affected by this. And so I would just really think about how could I listen to the experience of folks that might feel very uh, marginalized right now, might feel like they're not being represented, that their rights are being taken away because they're, they're not turning that off when they come into the workplace. And it doesn't mean you have to change any perspective or belief of your own. Listening to someone else's perspective or belief doesn't have to change yours, right? And so just drawing that line and saying, let's talk openly about this. So one of the things we've been trying to do are some listening sessions just so employees feel heard, that they feel like their company cares about them. And, and again, it, it's it, it, I think you, you put the ground rules in motion of everyone's entitled to their own beliefs and perspectives. That's what diversity and inclusion is about. We want to make sure we provide a forum so that people feel heard, that you feel seen, that you feel like we value and care about you. Um, and so that's something I, I think that will be really helpful going forward. Um, listening sessions were very popular for our clients back in the summer of 2020, and then they kind of got away from it, right? And so back to this consistency, intentionality, um, the workforce is constantly changing. You know, the R word, recession, is looming. Um, that usually leads to a trim in training budgets and DEI budgets, which I hope for organizations that does not happen for you because there is a huge ROI associated with this work. And especially if you cut it off when you've been doing it for the last couple of years, then you have to build up the momentum all over again when you come back to it. And there's really cost-effective programming, self-paced programs for folks, um, virtual programs for folks that don't have to be a huge investment, but please don't stop investing in DEI. It's tempting right now. It's tempting in the face of layoffs and whatever you know your industry might be facing, but when you commit to it and you double down on it, especially when times are tough, that really shows a deep commitment to your employees. So I, I challenge listeners to advocate for DEI investment, um, especially if we do enter you know, more of a downturn in right. the economy. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, you made a great point, I would also add to think of staying committed also means to continue to promote your culture, but continue to drive productivity. Because yep. one thing organizations typically when they stop, it it affects productivity in an organization. And 100%. People, yeah, people feel less productive. And so they say, well, why is this happening? Or why is this down? Or why is your performance? Or why aren't we doing what we could be doing? And it's because if you start it one way, and as I said, hey, if we started dating and you did these things in the beginning, don't stop doing them. <laughs> right, right. Because then it becomes weird. It's like, well, what else is going to change? Exactly. It's, so it's kind of the same thing. Employers, you're dating me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a relationship. It's a re- and, a, and a relationship is 40, yeah. 50, 60 hours of your life a week. I mean, yes. come on. So don't start and stop because that just like you're in a relationship with someone else, it's the same feeling that someone can get when you stop yeah. doing those things in the workplace. Right. And so it, it makes people feel a certain type of way. So I think if anyone takes away who's listening, who is an employer <laughs> or your worker, Julie has provided you some great foundation steps to take and also be inspired to really reach your next pivot point of how you're going to move in your business mm. or in your career. And I really want to thank you for just sharing with us some really great tools and nuggets that can be deployed 
whether in your yeah professional yeah. life or in your business, how do people connect with you, Julie? Thank you so much. I've, I've had some aha moments uh, of my own today. It's really nice to compare um, notes with somebody deep into this work and passionate about it as well. Because DEI is a relationship. I, I think that's a future blog post you've inspired <laughs> right. me to create. So it is. Um, yeah. So everything is branded Next Pivot Point. So it's super easy to find me, nextpivotpoint.com. On Twitter, Next Pivot Point, on Instagram, Next Pivot Point. And then probably the place where I'm most um, active is LinkedIn, um, where we met. And um, just search Julie Kratz. Um, just follow me there. I don't have the ability to make new connections anymore. Um, so please, if you want to see, um, I post every day something in the newsfeed. So, for example, um, studies like the one I mentioned with Lean In, there's new data, new thought leadership, um, some stuff of my own in my newsletter. So you can subscribe there. And follow us there. And then last thing I'd say, um, our website, we just launched um, some new tools. And um, that strategy roadmap, the DEI strategy roadmap I talked about is now on there. So you can actually download that um, right from the website, right on the homepage and check that out and build your own strategic roadmap because it's a really good time for budgeting and thinking about 2023. Can you believe that? I know. Um, and that tool has been really helpful for folks to kind of map out. DEI feels like, whoa, so big. And we built some practical steps and it's a free downloadable resource on our website. And it is a budget time. So people are starting to work on their 2023 budgets and they're going to have to submit them. So definitely organizations don't shy away or just reduce your, your D and I budgets completely, or, you know, cut them drastically because everything is tied into culture and culture is tied into productivity and so we just encourage everyone to find some allies. And thank you again, Julie, for being an awesome guest. This has been a wonderful conversation. And, and, and like you said, I just enjoy talking to someone. We can go really a, below the surface to yeah. really, yeah, do it, some deep dives and hopefully give people some really tangible things that they can deploy for themselves or in their business. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. A wonderful conversation. Yes. Well, this is all for our episode of the Future of Enterprise. I want to encourage everyone to follow us on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. I'm Fawn Hintrell, and thank you for listening.